The Lord ministers to us in two different ways when we gather. One, through his word. That's what's about to happen here. And then at his table. So we're going to be receiving grace from the Lord. And that's actually the big idea. Let me set the stage for this sermon and for tonight. Uh, For his glory, totally by his grace, the Lord has seen fit to invite us to be a part of uh, a little church planting movement, I don't know what else to call it, that is happening in and around us right now. There are or will be six or seven, seven mile road churches that are either making disciples or about to be making disciples in the Boston area and way beyond. Um, And some of those churches are preparing themselves to plant churches that will be a part of, of our bigger family. So this summer, I tried to get away as much as I could to take some time to begin writing a field guide for gospel ministry in the life of a seven-mile road church. Over the next few months, what I want to do is share with you the, the big ideas of who we are, what we do, and very importantly, why we do it. If you're brand new to the life of this church, this will be a perfect space to introduce you to the ethos of our church and family of churches. And if you are an old head like me, this is a perfect chance to reintroduce you to. And I hope to reinvigorate you about who we are and what we're going for together. When I'm writing, I'm thinking of hundreds of people who don't come here. But when I'm preaching and I'm praying about preaching, I'm thinking about you and your soul, and me and my soul. Seven Mile Original, that's sort of who we are, has a very bright gospel future. The Spirit is going to do some beautiful things in and through the life of this body. And we all need to be all in and aware of, hey, what does that look like? And so what is it like in the field of Seven Mile Road? We desperately want to answer that question from the pages of Scripture. The answer should just come right from here. One of the places where we have seen most clearly and most succinctly what it looks like for a church to be holy and healthy and fruitful is the back end of Acts chapter 20. In those words, Pastor Paul is speaking to the leaders and the members of a church that he and a team had planted together, and he's basically saying to them, let me rewind for you what it was that we've been about in the planting of this church. All we want to do is hear those big ideas and then say, how can this community look like that, this spirit-inspired catalog of the elements of a healthy church. Can we please have that going on right here together for the next five and ten years? That's what we're going for. 
Okay, I'm going to kick this off by just quoting to you the words of that text, the whole one, and then I'm going to preach at you from the two that Patty read before. So hear these words. This is, this is the shape of Seven Mile Road. Paul says it like this. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that would be profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, and men from among your own selves will rise up, speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. Therefore, remember that for three years, I did not cease to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance with all those who are being sanctified. Those are the words of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, you're our brother. You've saved us. Would you come by your spirit and just, just speak to us and bind our hearts together around what you want for us and from us, I pray. Amen. Okay, I'm a big, de- uh, a, a big idea guy. You know what I mean by that? In every situation, I always want to know, why are we here? What are we going for together? What is the big idea? What is the main thing? What is the bottom line? If that is clear and compelling, I'm in. If that is fuzzy and not really compelling, then I'm out. Every organization, every institution, every group of people that have ever come around, a team, a marriage, a class, whatever it is, They've all come together for some purpose. There is some bottom line of what they are about. Let me give you an example that will set this up. Supermarkets. If you went to the same supermarket every single day for six months, at the end of doing all of that shopping, 
you would be able to write down in a sentence, here's what this supermarket is all about. So for example, Whole Foods. What's the big idea at Whole Foods? We are saving the planet. Have you been down there? You're not just buying groceries. You're saving the world when you shop at Whole Foods. That's the big idea. How about Trader Joe's? We are having fun. Have you been to Trader Joe's? You're not trudging through the aisles grabbing your cookies and granola bars and milk. It's a party. Hawaiian t-shirts, everybody's smiling and giving you hugs. I'm like, I just want my cereal and I want to go home. Market basket. We are saving you money. That's why Market Basket exists. Stop and shop. We are ripping you off. (laughs) Do they not have that sign? Here's the big idea of Stop and Shop. You're about to get robbed. That's why Stop and Shop exists. That's its market niche. We could do that for anything else. Here's our question. What about Jesus' church? If you took six months and observed the life of an American church, your average American church, what might you come away thinking the big idea, the main thing, the bottom line is? I don't mean what they write on their website. We can all make that sound good. I mean in the field of the church. What's the big idea? I'm listing a bunch of these in this field guide so that we would understand them. Here's just the sampling. It could be we are avoiding the world. That's the big idea. It's a bad, ugly, evil place. Us and our kids, church is about avoiding the world. That's the big idea. It could be we're doing good works. The main thing is our soup kitchen, our orphanage in Mexico, and our monthly uh, walk for hunger. It could be we're studying theology. Those are the churches where everybody's got a 15-pound Bible and the Sunday school classes have long names and they go on cruises with R.C. Sproul for a vacation because that's the main thing. It could be community. We're We're here because we like each other. That's why we come. That's the center of it all. It could be social justice. That's the new rage here in Melrose. Social justice, unfortunately, usually unbiblically defined, has become the whole reason several churches exist in our city. That's the big idea. It could be emotional, spiritual experiences. This is the church that I grew up in. At the bottom, the main thing was to get a spiritual high together. That that was the big win we were going for. I, I could keep that list going. And there is a sense in which none of those things are bad things. The problem is when those things become the main thing. The bottom line of Jesus' church is supposed to be this big idea right here. And it will not be new to you. What we're really doing together is this. We are believing the gospel together. That's the bottom line. That's the main thing that we do. That's the engine that drives everything else.
We are believing the gospel together. That's us. Okay, where do we get that from and what are we talking about? A few lines into the speech that I, that I quoted for you, Paul point blank tells us what the big idea of his gospel ministry was. He just comes right out and says it. This church in this city of Ephesus is about this right here. He says it like this. Here is the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Ministry up here is a simple Greek word that just means the doing, the serving, the the commission, the mission that I'm on, the work that I am about. So Paul is about to let us know in the clearest, simplest possible way what the bottom line definition is of ministry for Jesus, the main thing. And here's how he says it. Patty read it. The big idea is this. This is my ministry, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Testify here means to It's like a solemn, earnest, intense, urging charge to just go after somebody by the shoulders, to look someone in the eye, to say, yo, you got to hear this. You got to take this in. You've got to believe this. To testify is, is to call people to hear and to believe something to be necessary and beautiful and true. And what is his ministry about testifying to? The gospel of the grace of God. What is this? This is the wild, fantastical, impossible but true truth that the one true and living God has acted decisively in the perfect life and the atoning death and the vindicating resurrection of Jesus Christ to forgive all of our sins, to begin a renewed creation, to bring us back into right relationship with him now and forever. The gospel of the grace of God is the announcement or the crazy news that by grace we now belong to Jesus. In other words, the bottom line of Paul's ministry was putting forth, talking about, thinking on, going over, marveling at, and believing in the grace of God in the gospel. Here's how we say it at Seven Mile Road. It's like gospel grace is our oxygen and the primary activity at seven mile, is breathing it in. Grace is our oxygen, and what we're doing is breathing it in. All right, the Kangamangas Highway, 34-mile stretch of pavement that runs across the top third of the wonderful state of New Hampshire. You don't go anywhere near the Kangamangas Highway in the wintertime unless you like to ski or you like to sleep in tents in 10 degree weather and four feet of snow. But in the summertime, the White Mountains, this highway, is a great place to be. Scenic, there's pools and eddies, actual ponds by the side of the road where people swim and fish and grill out. 
And there are natural rivers and waterfalls in the woods around the Kangamangas Highway. My senior year, we road tripped up to the Kangamangas Highway on a Saturday, north from Boston. We're doing about 65 miles an hour. One of my crazier friends yells out, dude, dude, this is it, this is it, and pulls over to the side of the road. Not a parking lot, not a rest stop, just the the shoulder on the side of the road. And then he hustles us about 200 yards into the woods. And this, there is this rapids that goes under this rock formation and then plunges about 15 feet, 20 feet into a giant pool of ice cold white mountains water. Now, there's no signs. There's no trail markers. There's no ladders. There's no docks. It's just nature. And he says, kid, you got to do this. You got to do this. All right, so I'm 18. I'm on top of the world. I just graduated high school. What bad could happen to me? I strip down into my jorts because it's 1990. And I go sit in the middle of the stream and I push off and I'm headed for this waterfall. And three thoughts hit me in succession over the next 90 seconds. Number one, wow, this water is rushing much faster than it looked. Then I go off the edge and I go down. Number two, Wow, this water is much colder than I thought. And then number three, I'm going to die in New Hampshire. (laughs) I don't believe it. I'm going to die in New Hampshire. I plunged under the water and all the air immediately went out of my lungs and they just contracted because the water was way under 32 degrees. Now when you jump off a diving board in a pool and you cannonball, Well, I'm 6'3", so this may not be true for you, but you can touch the bottom and then you can push back up. There's no bottom here. And the water coming off is rushing so fast that it's forcing you down under. And so I haven't breathed, and now I'm fighting to get to the surface, and I still haven't breathed. And now I'm fighting to get to the edge somewhere, and I still haven't breathed. And when I finally reached it, like I said, there's no ladders there. It's just this slick face of rock. So now I'm clawing at this, trying to get up. And then I made a very important decision in my life. I am not dying in New Hampshire. And I I found an edge and I pulled myself up and I threw myself down on the ground, flailed out, and I just, I just breathed. Three, seven, it could have been 20 minutes. I don't know. Oxygen had never tasted so sweet. I know the air in the White Mountains is like extra clean, but this was life-saving air. Okay, here's our field guide. You replace the oxygen of the White Mountains with the grace of God and the gospel, and you replace breathing with believing, and you have the bottom line of gospel ministry and the Christian life. We die. You die. I die without the grace of God in the gospel. I don't mean the gospel is some kind of religious therapy that makes us feel better about ourselves. I mean, it is our life. It's our life. Now, all of American culture is built to suppress that truth in your mind, to steal it from your mind, and to convince you that 
your sin is not that serious, and either you don't need to be saved, or you can save yourself, but you do not need the grace of God. But the truth is that we do. We need grace like we need oxygen. We need a word to come into us from the outside about what someone else provides to us. And we need to breathe it and believe it if we're going to live. I remember the first time that I ever breathed in the grace of God in the gospel. My dad and mom had instilled in me the grammar of the gospel and planted the seeds of grace, but it wasn't until the spring of 1985 that there was, was a harvest of that. We were considering moving from New York City up to Boston. Ended up at a Friday night youth group service. It was like the first one I had ever been around. Complete with a rock band and flaming swords and songs where you had to move your body to the motion, you know, J-E-S-U-S, and Too Saucy Pizza. These are the marks of the youth group right there. At some point on this night, everyone ended up on the stage in a circle, and then they started passing the microphone around, and you were supposed to tell everybody where you were at with Jesus. There was no explicit gospel message given on this night. There was no altar call. There was no invitation to repent and believe. And I can't explain it, but the lungs of my spirit were brought to life that night. You know, like a little baby just out of the womb screaming and sucking in air for dear life. That was me. I don't remember what I said, just that I cried. And I was kind of embarrassed because a whole room of teenagers I was just meeting was staring right at me. But what happened was that all the truths that seemed to be irrelevant and inconsequential about Jesus suddenly became beautiful and true and necessary. And the cross was no longer some weird symbol of some religion that my family was into, but it was the means of the forgiveness of my sin. And Jesus was no longer some weird sandal-wearing storyteller. He was God, and he was Lord, and he was Savior. And all of the playing and the pretending and the posturing that I had been doing and I was so good at, and you are very good at, it just came crashing down in a heap. And the grace of God in the gospel just tore through my soul like a hurricane. I was suffocating under my sin, and it was like Jesus just threw open the windows of heaven, and I breathed. Here's the Christian lingo for that. I was saved by grace through faith. This is what we're doing here, testifying to one another in every avenue of our life together, not just with the preacher, everything that we do, every sermon, every song, every prayer, every gospel community, every track, we are calling one another to breathe in the grace of God, bottom line. And very importantly, 
not just one time, not just to kick things off and then we get the hand of the baton and we take over for God from there. Hearing and believing the gospel of grace is the big idea all the way through, all the way through. There's this very cool thing about breathing. Unless you're a uh, Michael Phelps, I was going to say Jason Bourne, but it's true about him too. Jason Bourne can stay underwater for like 16 minutes in a movie. I'm not sure how he does that. Unless you're Michael Phelps or Jason Bourne, you kind of need to breathe every 7 seconds, 10 seconds, 12 seconds. You can't get your breathing in in the morning and then go about the rest of your day. Breathing is a continual pursuit. If breathing is not happening, nothing else good is going to be getting done in your life. In the same way, believing in the grace of God, in the gospel, is not just the front door to gospel ministry at our church. It is the fuel that everything else runs on. The grace of God in the gospel is the air that we breathe, and we breathe, and we breathe, and we breathe. It is so crucial that we get this. Thankfully, the text is explicit about this for us. At the end of his speech, after going into all of these things that we're going to talk about together, all these elements of a healthy church, where does Pastor Paul anchor the whole endeavor? What's the bottom line that he sends them to? After he has charged and threatened and warned and encouraged and instructed, what's his final bottom line? He goes right back to the grace of God in the gospel. Here's how he says it. And now, at the end, I commend you to Commend is that word that means in this whole thing, I'm going to commit you to one reality. I'm going to recommend that you go to this one reality. Everything is hanging on this one thing here. All the details hanging on this one thing. Whatever comes next is huge. It's the hinge that everything else is going to swing on. He says, okay, and now, bottom line, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, inseparable, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance with all those who are being sanctified. Can everybody feel this? Where does the joy, where does the power, where does the fire, where does the energy, where does the hope come from for us to be a a good church together? It's God and the word of his grace. In other words, God speaking grace to your soul is not just how we start this Christian life together and then we move on to some other big thing somewhere else. Grace is the animating, empowering, convicting, disciplining, sanctifying reality that we need in the field. Grace. Grace upholding, uplifting, affirming, correcting, teaching, comforting. In other words, Paul is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
you don't stop breathing in the grace of God and the gospel. It remains our bottom line. It's grace all the way down to the bottom. Okay, nobody ever told me this before. After breathing for the first time, I was very quickly discipled into a culture of works. Jesus gave me the baton. Now I got to run with it. Jesus has chosen me. Now I got to work really hard to show the world that he made a good choice. Jesus died for me. Now the rest of my life is paying him back by living a holy or almost perfectly holy life. You feel the weight of that? Grace in the past, my capacity in the present. It was like the air was sucked right out of my lungs. It was like you took me from standing on a balcony of an ocean villa. Then you locked me in a porta potty. The best way I can explain that is what that was like. I became a hamster on a treadmill and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. And it was like that for years until I came under the preaching of the doctrines of grace. This happened in the late 90s during our stay at a small congregational church that planted this church over in Forestdale. What's weird, and don't take this wrong, is that the literal air in this church smelled like Lysol and old people. That was the literal air when you walked in. Old people who I would hug and love. I will smell that way one day. But the spiritual air in this place was white mountains, oxygen, sweet. For three years, the pastor just stood up and preached grace to begin with, to end with, and all through the middle. And finally, it became clear to me what the bottom line of the Christian life was. It's got to be grace because I'm totally depraved and on my own, I could do nothing to earn or keep my salvation. It's got to be grace. It's got to be grace because Jesus' election of me was not predicated on Anything that I had done, could do, might do, would do. It's got to be grace. It's got to be grace because the blood of Jesus was definitely shed for my sin for good. It's got to be grace because even my salvation was not primarily about what I brought to the table, but about God just rearranging my life. It's got to be grace because Nothing could change the take-it-to-the-bank fact that I belong to Jesus for good. For three years, I breathed. I breathed. Cruz, you've been saved by grace through faith. You are being saved by grace through faith. You're going to be saved by grace through faith. It's out of that experience that came the planting of this church here. And if I had the time, I could give you story after story after story of what has happened as we've invited people to breathe grace. Will Anderson, Red and Auburn Hudson, Jay and Shinu Thomas, I could probably run down 
150 names of you, of people who finally breathed. This is why in the field we talk with you about perpetually pursuing gospel wakefulness in your own soul before you try and disciple anyone else. This is why we preach sermons when we get together with all the churches, like we got to constantly be floored by the gospel. This is why we're always asking each other in every situation, hey, how are you believing or where are you not believing the gospel right now? Uh, That's not a threat. That is our way of embracing you and Heimlich maneuvering you and saying, breathe. How does the gospel change this situation right here? Because that's our bottom line. Are you breathing? Us believing the gospel is where God's highest glory and our deepest joy intersect. So the main thing that I want for you, the main thing that I need for me, the bottom line is, are we breathing in the grace of God. This summer, six of us piled into a one-bed hotel room in Long Beach, California for our family vacation. It's great. One of the things on our bucket list because we were in SoCal was surfing lessons. I was totally intending to go to the beach with Grace and stand on the shore and take some pictures and just watch my kids figure this out. That was the plan. But when I was paying for the thing, I told the guy uh, that I was a pastor of a church back in Boston, and the guy liked me. This is unusual. People usually don't like me. The first time they meet me, it takes a while. Some of you are very likable. You know, Dan Coe, and people just like those guys. With me, it takes a little while. This guy liked me. So he's like, you're going surfing, you're going surfing, it's on me, it's free, go with your kids. I'm 43 years old. There's a bucket list of things you should not attempt to do for the first time when you're 43 years old. One of those things is surfing. It took me 20 minutes just to put the wetsuit on. (laughs) I was in trouble, I knew it from there. I got out in the water, and there's like a hundred things on my mind that have to be done, a hundred elements going on at the same time, right? I I had melanoma once, so I like caked on sunscreen, and I'm like, oh no, I'm out in the sun, just on the ocean. Uh, I'm out with my four kids. One of them is eight years old. I don't want any of them to drown. That's on my mind. I'm trying to crane my neck and keep my elbows up on the surfboard, and I can't do it because these muscles don't work anymore because I'm 43, and now I'm in pain. I got to remember when the wave comes, push up on your knees and then your feet and then you turn and then you ride. And it's like this process going through my head. I'm keeping my eye out for sharks, right? This is the ocean. I'm trying to catch the waves. About 10 minutes in, I get cranked with the Pacific Ocean wave. And my board goes this way. I go this way. I don't even know if my suit was still going to be on after this violent crash. Salt water, seaweed, crabs, sand, it's all in my mouth. I get back on the board. Now I'm worried about getting hit by waves. Can you feel the million things floating around in my, my mind? And 
I forgot to breathe. You know how that happens? And the instructor looked right at me, and he said, whoa, whoa, Matt, Matt, breathe. The air's free, bro. Everything was bro with this guy. Breathe. The air is free. This is the bottom line of our life together right here. It's crazy. But the grace of God has been freely given to us. And not just once. It is a a fountain that cannot be exhausted. It is like oxygen in the air. It is every step of the way. With the million other things we need to be about, the bottom line, the primary thing, the big idea is, let's breathe in the grace of God and the gospel. Everything else will flow from that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd meet us by your grace. You are our reward. Please hear that. We are not going for a big church. We are not going for a famous church. We're going for a church where the grace of God and the gospel has been heralded and loved and believed. And we sinners who suffocate under our sin are finally alive and breathing. Would you remind us to breathe together? Would you meet us with the oxygen of grace? Would you never let our efforts, our wisdom, our intelligence, our strategy, our capacity become the main thing? Teach us to breathe. Teach us to believe. I do pray that you would bring every weary soul, every disgusting sinner, every broken heart, every rebel in these cities in contact with this church because here they will be testified to about and called to breathe in the grace of God, that God is for us in the gospel. Spirit, without you animating us, it's over and we're dead. But with you, anything is possible. So we just, we lean into you together this morning. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks for listening to that. Would you pursue that bottom line with us? We're coming to the table of Jesus now. If you've breathed in the grace of God, this meal is open for you. Don't be fooled by the tiny little samplings that's up here. This is a a feast and these